The subject for our um, conversation tonight is uh, the whole question of Midrash in the Haggadah. And we're, what we're going to do is we're going to look at um, certain ideas and uh, sometimes phrases, words, etc., uh, that come up or concepts that come up in the Passover Haggadah. And then we're going to look at uh, Midrash on those same ideas and get uh, sort of a different perspective on those ideas than we might get from uh, the, the Haggadah. Um, we're going to um, spend a good amount of time on the Midrashim and deal with a very fundamental question, namely, why is it that the Israelites were enslaved? Why did this come about? And the fact that uh, there are so many different Midrashic interpretations uh, about that tells you that it's been a point of struggle for uh, a long time and nobody's been really satisfied with uh, the answer. So people for a long time kept coming up with new answers and maybe better ones. So we'll look at that question um, and we will... Um, I, I'm not sure how much time we're actually, we'll have time to get to every single thing here, but we may have time to look at um, a, a very interesting Midrash that deals with the, the sort of question of what happens when God does not rescue their, us from their hands, like the Haggadah tells us, and every generation will be rescued, etc. Well, what happens if, what's the Midrashic answer when that doesn't happen? So we'll look at some things like that. Um, and then we'll actually look at how the, um, a couple of examples of how the Haggadah actually uses Midrash itself. So part of this is going to be looking at how Midrash reflects on themes for, uh, that the Haggadah deals with, and other, the other part is going to deal with how the Haggadah itself deals with Midrash. Uh, do you have me to hand up? Oh, please. Yes. So, um, sure. I, just to say a word about uh, Midrash itself. This is a term... Welcome. Just hold on one sec. So, um, Midrash, uh, just, ah, uh, well, well, it's very good that people are coming. <laughs> so, Midrash is a term that um, I'm sure everybody is um, familiar with to some extent, um, but in case uh, somebody is not, this is a, um, a word that derives uh, from a, um, a verb or a root that is connected with drawing out meaning and maybe even pounding things to sort of get something out of them. To beat, beat meaning out of something, or to beat something and to change its form. And it's, it's a huge body of literature uh, that really dates from about the time of the, the Mishnah, from around 200, uh, all the way through the, the medieval period. So vast, vast body of literature. Uh, a lot of it expounds on verses from Torah. And uh, some is concerned with matters of law, but a lot just with um, exposition of uh, verses of Torah. And there's a lot of... Um, very creative thinking there, and very bold, very challenging. Um, and compared to our standard uh, liturgy, 
and other places that are kind of along the screen, like the Haggadah, where you might encounter Midrash as well, some of the, um, the Midrash that we'll be looking at today, and it, it, which is just a little teeny slice of what's out there, is very out there, very bold, very challenging, and very surprising in many ways, too. And to me, uh, very encouraging. Uh, it's kind of, uh, it's not the party line. And so it's very, it's always exciting. As I think you'll see. Okay, um, now one word about the, um, the development of the, uh, the Haggadah itself, because people have different ideas about this. Uh, the Haggadah really starts developing uh, after the destruction of the Temple with the Mishnah around 200, maybe a little bit before that um, in um, something called the Tosefta. Sometimes that the, the Tosefta is thought of as a a commentary on the mission is sometimes as containing earlier material, but there's a there's a version of something like a, a, a primitive type of seder in the Tosefta, and then by the time you get to the Mishnah, there's something that you would definitely recognize as a seder. It does not have all of the ingredients of our Maxwell House Haggadah, but it has um, all the basic elements. There's the four questions. There's Rabban Gamliel's instructions to define Pesach Matzah and Maror in particular ways. There's the requirement to make a midrash about um, the, the story of the Exodus recounted in the 26th chapter of Deuteronomy. There's, a, there's much more about telling the story in the Mishnah uh, that is familiar to us from uh, what we have in the Tanakhata now. So uh, from those early days of uh, Mishnaic times, the Haggadah continued to, to develop through the Middle Ages um, I mean, there were things that were changing in the 1500s, in some cases, maybe even a little bit later. So we're talking about uh, something that continued to evolve for more than a thousand years. So the Haggadah is not, um, you know, a text that popped into somebody's head or came from one place at one point in time at all. It's something, there were two different versions of it. There was a Babylonian version, there's an Eretz Yisrael version. so it's, a, it's, a, it's something that really evolved over a very, very long period of time. It has a very complex history. Okay? Okay, so those are just some uh, words of general introduction in background. Okay, so let's take a look at our, um, our handout now and go to page two. And we're, as I mentioned, we're going to start with this whole question of why it is that the Israelites were enslaved. And we're going to actually begin with um, a midrash on the whole, on the meaning of karpas, the parcel, whatever this spring green might be. Does somebody want to read that? It's text number one. Yes? Great. We have a custom that karpas is a a remembrance of the stripes called Zorath Pasim that our father Jacob gave to Joseph, which caused a chain of events that led our ancestors to go down to Egypt. Okay. So, we have here, um, is this a, is this a Midrash that people are familiar with? No? Yeah. Yes? Mm-hmm. A few yes and a few yes, mostly no. So what, what do we usually associate with, you know, if somebody's asking you at the Seder, what, what, what are we associating uh, parsley, Carpus with what was that? Spring. Yeah. More question, but Ross's question. 
Oh, that's some questions. Okay. But here we're, we're looking at the relationship between the Kotonet Passim, the striped coat, and the, and the Karpas. And the notion here is that, well, one of the answers for how we got down into Egypt is that coat. And if that coat did not arouse such jealousy among um, the brothers, Joseph's brothers, they wouldn't have sold him into slavery. He wouldn't have risen to be able to provide his family with sustenance, etc. Maybe they would have gone down and come back out, or maybe they, you know, who knows? But the, the story is dipped in blood. Huh? The coat was dipped in blood. Was dipped well, we're dipping carpus in salt water. The, the, the coat is dipped in something, though. Yes, that's true, too. Uh, at any rate, the point of this little midrash here is that um, little consequences like, like uh, or little behavior like favoritism is something that can have some very, very dramatic consequences that ripple down through the generations. It's a very, um, you know, heavy uh, interpretation behind a little piece of carpus. Uh, it's just pass. Just pass. Strike. Midrash does not take a lot, and they don't necessarily. But what pass has to do with? Oh, just the pass. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Midrash usually will have something, something linguistic that is going on. Um, Sometimes it's easy to find, and sometimes it's really not. And sometimes it's really beside the point. Um, but that's what it is here. And so um, this is actually picking up on a, uh, yeah, sure. Also, usually the code is referred to as a code of many colors. Right. But here it's striped. The stripe is a very suggestive word. Striped. It, it has a lot of associations of like two-faced or crooked or <coughs> I'm trying to think of exact things which I can't but stripe in English often associates to okay. not not clear, not kosher. Yeah. Certainly not a code of a many color. Oh, a different stripe. Could be a yes, yeah. Okay. Okay. So I've never heard strange. Yeah, well, it's you really um, much closer to what the Hebrew is. It's not many colors. Oh. Yeah. And English is always a code of many colors. Okay, so um, that little uh, interpretation of uh, Karpas is based on something that we're going to look at now in the Talmud, which is text number two. Who wants to read that? Should never single out one son among his other sons. For on account of the two houses' weight of silk, which indicated Joseph and Ephraim of his other sons, his brothers became jealous of him, and the matter resulted in their ancestors' descent. Right. So there you have it. I mean, uh, you know, we have a whole, we have a tradition of explaining what happened to us on the basis of the behavior, this very um, difficult behavior of Jacob's. Uh, a, a pattern of behavior that was going on in his family, he didn't invent, he inherited this whole question of favoritism, which is something that you, or choosing, choosing one son over another, is something that you see in the patriarchal families um, right from the very beginning. 
Yeah. Where did the two ounces come from? Well, a little bit. The coat wasn't like, I guess, involving, you know, this wasn't like going out and spending. Maybe they just made that up, that it was too Well, long. the point is, a little bit of something. Okay. You know, a little, a little bit of adornment. What was it that made that coat different than the other coats? It wasn't like it was 50 tons of gold. It was a, you know, a, little, a little extra adornment that one has that the other ones don't have. Yeah. It's also a theme about uh, because satyrs, your children, and so forth, part of the same theme, theme that involves how to differentiate your children. Well, okay. Yeah, we actually have in the satyr, of course, we have a lot of judgment about good children, wise ones, wicked ones, etc. So, be careful. I mean, there's a, there's a warning here. There's a warning here that being singled out uh, can have consequences. And if you want to think about that a little bit more, I mean, how far could you take that if you really wanted to uh, spin that out a little further? How far? What, 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 what could this be alluding to? Us. Huh? Us. How do you mean us? A little more, did you say? Yeah. Yeah. So um, maybe a little bit of a double-edged sword. Yeah. Okay. You're, you're no, I was just thinking that all, all of classic Judaism is about, it's not really favoritism, it's recognizing so-and-so is the one chosen to do this, and so-and-so right. has more light, and even in Sikhism, uh, even until today, it's not about favoritism, it's about recognition. Yeah. Well, um, what these two little texts are uh, suggesting is that uh, giving that little bit of recognition or receiving that little bit of recognition has consequences, can have consequences. But the consequences in the long run are good. Well, we are told. Well, yes. I mean, maybe the road had to go through Egypt. Maybe that's so. Uh, that's how it seems to be. Well, thank <laughs> Um, let's let's hold off on that one. But that, that's an interesting. Maybe this is all part of the plan, and it all had to be that way. Maybe. Maybe. <coughs> okay. But it, it opened these kinds of immigration open up questions, all kinds of questions. That's for sure. Okay. So, Avadim um, Hagino the So, another explanation of why it is that we're enslaved. We're going to look at uh, in text. Four. Very interesting little Midrash. Uh, late medieval Midrash. Okay, who would like to read uh, text four there? Before the Israelites went down to Egypt, the children of the matriarchs degraded the children of their maidservants, literally their female slaves, and did not treat them in a fraternal way. And this was very difficult for the Holy One to see. The Holy Spirit would cry out, Every part of you is fair. Song of Songs. Said the Holy One, How can I make them accept the maidservants' children? I will send them down to Egypt, and they will all be slaves. When I redeem them, I will give them the commandments of Passover to observe to them and their children and their children's children. And they will all say, I believe in We were slaves to Pharaoh, and we discovered that they, were that they are all evil. Why did God do this? What did God do? Sorry. Why did God do this? 
to announce the Holy One's grace and glory to all creatures in the world, and to let them know that they should make peace among all God's creations. Thank you. So reactions to this one? What, what strikes you? Um, 
So the Hatai, I mean, it, it gives a very different interpretation of the role of human beings in terms of the redemptive process. It doesn't completely exclude the role of human beings, but it certainly downplays and gives a lot of the credit to God. So it's, it's, it's a, you know, it's an interpretation. Fair enough, but not because it doesn't know that Moses was involved. It chooses not to put him in. For particular reasons, some of which we'll get to in a little bit. Yes? The line that says, every part of you is there. The Holy Spirit would cry out, every part of you is there. Yeah. So who is he talking to? Well, meaning that all of my children are beautiful. It's not like some are, you know, uh, attractive and some are not attractive. You're all beautiful, attractive to me. Yeah? It also draws the idea that nation building requires a shared experience. They had to suffer together. It wasn't enough that they suddenly went down the comic and on. It promotes the idea that they weren't brotherly at that time. That's right. Which is a new concept for me. I mean, sure, there was Yosef, who was one above 11, but okay, maybe he and the Newton's family were kind of close and the rest of But here, it seemed like there were at least two major groups the haves and the have nots. They were the sons, the sons of the mothers and the sons of the maidservants. And I. I always wondered we didn't make him a host, but that's a whole different thing. But I was like, obviously there was there's an idea here that they were not a na- they're not ready to be a nation yet. They had to share something. Right. And if the Marcote wasn't enough, and the Revelation wasn't enough, being slaves might be enough. Right. Yeah. Did you? No. It's definitely a strain that Yosef sided with the maidservants for his brothers as opposed to Leah's uh, mm-hmm. children. If there were two factions within. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But what you say about the need for a common experience to uh, kind of, um, it's, it's not just a common experience that everybody, so we, now we all have had an experience that we share. It's that we're all going to be abused and we're all going to have this, be on the, on the very short end of the stick. We're all going to be oppressed and we're going to learn through that not to build a country around that. I mean, it's, it's a shared experience, but there's a moral imperative that's supposed to come out of that, mm-hmm. and a certain memory that's supposed to come out of that. Um, yeah? But it seems as this was written at a medieval time, so yeah. I would think that the Jews are not having a very good time. Yeah, mm-hmm. well, which makes the... So they needed this. <laughs> well, um, you know, in a certain way, the fact that it's a medieval midrash, um, when times were not, or maybe even especially bad, makes this more surprising. Because it, it's this universalistic voice that is, you know, in the midst of even that horrible time. But to me, it's kind of a reassurance that we're we're not where we are. We're not having such a bad time. We are. Oh, you mean it could be worse? Yeah, that it's oh. kind of have to counter. Okay, okay, all right. Okay, so that's the good news is even if you're, you know, you know there's crusades and this and that. Right. It could be worse. It was worse in Egypt. Okay. You really aren't because you're God. Okay. Okay. All right. Um, let's move on. Any, any further comments on that? Okay. But a very atypical but wonderful midrash. I love it. Okay. Uh, text number six. So, well, so let's. We can just. Somebody could read five and six together. That would be great. He said unto Abraham, his name had not been changed. Know well that your offspring shall be strangers in a land not theirs, 
and they shall be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. Let me just say one thing. So, a little bit before this, um, God has said to Abraham, Abraham, look, you know, you're going to be numerous, you're going to have the land, and, and uh, Abraham is saying, well, how do I know this? How do I know that I'm going to have children, and how do I know that I'm going to inherit the land? And these, there's one other place before this where um, Abraham calls, he calls to God or something like this, but there's no actual commun- direct communication, there's no use of words between from, from uh, Abraham to God until this. So these are the, the first sort of the first articulation of words at least that we get from Torah from Abraham to God. And they're both questions. Okay, so please continue. Okay. Should I read the next one? Abraham's lack of faith. Why was our father Abraham punished and his children doomed to Egyptian servitude for 210 years? Because he went too far in testing the attributes, the promises of the Lord as it is written, and he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I am to possess the land? Right. So, um, the idea is the question here. But we, usually, we think about questioning as um, actually not, not such a bad thing. And when we think about Abraham questioning God on other matters, we think that that's being a very upright up thing. The fact that Abraham is willing to argue about the, the future of the residents of Sodom and Gomorrah and challenge God in you know, a very bold kind of way, we count that very much to Abraham's credit. But here, somehow, these kinds of questions are going real far. So maybe the difference between questioning God's calling God's justice to be just, because God's finding himself the way, and they're asking about God's providence. That may be a, that may be, I don't know exactly how to say it, but that may be a problem. Maybe. And this is also asking, uh, this is Abraham and Sodom and Moore is not asking really about himself. No, what for himself. This is really about, what about these things that, you know, I left home for these things, and what about them? Right. Yeah. So um, notice also that um, in these two um, little um, passages that we have a, um, a different amount of years that we're talking about. The first mm-hmm. one talks about 400 years, and the second one, uh, 210. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the, there are many different places where these, these um, differences come up. And the, the usual explanation for this is that um, in the first passage, we're talking about like um, from that moment, but there's other ways of calculating when the actual um, enslavement began, and this is actually um, let's see, it has to do with um, Isaac being 60 years old when Jacob was born, and going down into Egypt. Jacob lives until 130. So if you add 60 to add 130, uh, you come up with 210. Oh, oh, oh. Come up with 190. Oh, no, okay. You subtract 190 from, from 400 and you get 210. That's, that's, oh. that's it. So um, anyway, there's 430 years in some places, 400 to 10 years. But um, very, very simple, basic things like that you'll often find, uh, like if you actually try to count what are the ten plays, or what are the ten, there's supposed to be ten words, ten body owners, 
that God created everything with. Sometimes it's very hard to actually be sure what those very simple, basic things are. And if you, if you scratch beneath the surface of things that seem to be very um, straightforward, often not. Okay. So, um, we're going to look at a, um, a Midrash now from Exodus Rabbah. Um, Exodus Rabbah, very, uh, very fascinating, lengthy um, collection of Midrashim just on the book of Exodus. Other things too, but mostly, mostly on the book of Exodus from about the 10th century. And this is going to amplify a little bit more on uh, this question of um, Abraham's questions of God, to God. How do we know, etc. So who would like to read this one? Then Moses returned to the land and said, O Lord, why did you bring harm to this people? It was then Moses exchanged words with God by asking, Why did you bring harm? What is the meaning of this expression? It is usual when one man asks another, Why have you done this? He is angry with him, yet Moses said to God, Why did you bring harm? In fact, this is what he said. I have perused the book of Genesis and read the doings of the generation of the flood and how they were punished, and that was according to what they deserved. Also how the generation of Saddam, which witnessed the separation of races, were punished, likewise according to what they deserved. Moses said, But this people... What has it done to be more enslaved than all preceding generations? Is it because our father Abraham said, How shall I know I am to possess the land? And you said to him, Know well, your offspring shall be strangers. Well, if this be so, then Esau and Ishmael, also being descendants, should likewise have been subjected to slavery. Moreover, the generation of Isaac and Jacob should have been subjected rather than my generation. Okay. So what are your thoughts about that one? What does it mean by separation of reasons? This is, I believe, a reference to um, the separation of um, languages in the Tower of Babel. Yeah. If it's not a medieval concept. What? If a guy is a Moses, this is a medieval concept, 10th century, a medieval commentator asking why the Jews are suffering in that time. Yeah. It may not be that, but I think he's putting it in the words of Moses. Why are suffering? If this goes back to Abraham, why didn't some other generation suffer? Why is not that generation suffering so much at such a distant period to the original sin? Right. Is that possible? Well, very much, and we're going to get to um, things that are, um, take that up very, very quickly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Are there any other writings that say whether or not they saw the Ishmael were punished? Hmm? Are there any writings that say whether or not they saw the Ishmael were punished in the Talmud or somewhere else? Well, not Ishmael were uh, made Shuba and reconciled with the family. 
think Connor's not in not in any kind of way that he's a, that it's, a, it's not like there's this Exodus story somewhere that applies to them. Right, so I'm just wondering, is there any proof whether they were or weren't? Because we don't know that they weren't. We don't know that they are, they were. Well, we don't know of anything in our literature that describes right. any ordeal for them that is equivalent. <coughs> what this midrash is saying, what it's just all of it, this should have befallen all of Abraham's descendants. I thought that only was some. Yeah. Well, there is a medrash that Asa should have been punished and his children should have been enslaved as well. But when Yaakov and Asa meet after 20 years mm -hmm. and they embrace, and Asa, remember, Yaakov thinks he's going to be killed and he brings a gift and so on. The medrash says that Yaakov says to Asa, don't kill me. I and my descendants will take the slavery that was sworn to Abraham, we will take it from you. And that's why Asa and Yaakov are able to reconcile. So that there is a measure. So that's it. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. I, uh, I'm, to me, it's an example of just how um, outrageous Midrash can be that Moses is taking God to task yeah. for, bringing, for bringing down the place, for bringing such terrible suffering. And that, and I would say that that's a question that people always have. Why, why did the Exodus involve so much suffering? So you're seeing this as uh, Moses uh, kind of questioning God about the, the suffering that the Egyptians were enduring as a result of the plagues. Okay. But, uh, I, but, but it's clear from the Chumash that what Moshe is asking is he started his job. He's finally given in and he's spoken to Paro and the first reaction is that it's going to be worse for the Jews. Right. They're going to lose the ability, they're no longer going to have straw. So you have, a, you have the accusation from Moses, why have you done this evil? This evil, right now, right? This, Moses isn't a philosopher. And what the Medrash is doing, I think, the comments earlier about Jews in centuries later, I think the Medrash is moving the Torah to the current audience. It's saying, you know, you've got to put your sufferings in a larger Jewish context. You've got to understand where you stand and how you may be the same or different. This has very little to do with Moses. Moses, and they all know it, right? They all they can read the Chumash. It's very clear what Moses, what Moshe is saying to God, and God's elliptical answer to him. Mm -hmm. So I, I, this is one of the places where it's the current audience where the Haggadah speaks to. Yeah. Right. But we, you know, I mean, if you want to just think about the um, Moses' great hesitation yeah. in taking on the job in the first place, maybe, maybe they're not going to believe me, etc. Moses is very hesitant. He is. He's very hesitant. In his first experiences um, with Pharaoh, things are not getting better; they're getting worse. So, for somebody who's having those kinds of uh, who had those hesitations at the outset, even before yeah. the beginning the turn of events may resonate in a particular way. Right, except with one exception. This is the place where Moses accepts his job. Where he says, why have you made it worse? Why have you made it evil for the, 
for them, and why have you sent me? As opposed to all the other times where he says, why are you sending me? Why am I doing this? His personal concerns are now secondary. This is the first time. In, and that may be why Moses doesn't make the Haggadah. Because we will be waiting for another Moses. Okay. I want to focus a little bit on more on this business. Uh, he's angry. He says, why have you done this? Why, when someone usually asks this question, he's angry with the person. Right? He's saying, no, Moses is not being angry. We're like asking a query. I've reviewed Genesis. Whenever other people were punished, they deserved it. And he seems, I don't punish in all the references to, to Esau and to Ishmael, but he's kind of saying, in my mind, educate me. What can we do wrong? And what can we do to make things better? And it's like, well, you know, to me, it's like, I know that at some point we're going to put blood on the on our and prove our faith. Is that what we need to do? I mean, the point is perhaps Moshe's asking, what did we do wrong and how can we get closer to you? Uh, you're, you're shaking your head. <laughs> I don't want to repeat myself. I don't think it's about how can we get closer to you at all. It's a person asking how can the righteous generation of this time to go to this punishment and the people who are persecuting us are not. We read that many times this week, all these numbers, stuff like that. How can we, how can we or chosen people, be yeah. suffering like this? Do we deserve sins? Do we And we didn't do the sins. Why, why are we doing And the worst Christendom, and why, why are the very people persecuting us not being punished at all? Yeah. yeah, I think that Moses here is basically trying to make an argument that we don't, in fact, deserve this. Mm-hmm. Right? If you were going to apply things logically, it certainly wouldn't be just us. There would be if, there would be others that would be in the same company as us. They're not. What's going on? So it's a, it's a kind of an angry complaint that we do not in fact deserve this. I think. And there's a lot of midrash that has that kind of boldness uh, to God. Very questioning, arguing, challenging. Not always, but if, if you want to find it, you'll find it in midrash. Yes. Well, in terms of the anger, it, it's so textually here. Why have you done this? We could as open to interpretation, but then why did you bring harm? Mm-hmm. It's not why did why this is happening. Could you I think you, why did you do harm? Mm-hmm. It's accusing you of doing harm. Right. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, I think it's the uh, universal cry of the child who has no power at all. Zalofair. And that's what Moses is saying. Yeah. So he's, re- he's beginning to recognize the difference in uh, who's powerful and who's not. <coughs> okay. So does this Midrash encourage children to ask questions to this leader? Well, it did encourage them. <laughs> well, I think that here you have Moses being very bold in his asking questions. So if you're going to take that as an example, I'd say it would be very empowered. Moses is quite empowered here. This is not the timid Moses who was um, up there the burning bush. This is somebody who's, you know, as he stepped into the role of leadership already, and he's challenging um, the, the, the source of his orders even. Okay, anything else on that? All right, so let's, um, let's move to another explanation. So we're, this is our eighth explanation um, of why it is that uh, we were enslaved. <laughs> They're kind of piling up. So it, it's a, it is a fundamental question. So can I just go back there? Yeah. The, the, um, uh, the one before had to do with 
the fact that Abraham questioned God, right. and that was considered something that was a negative, that it was an explanation for why things we fell like. Is this, are they saying the same thing? They're not saying the same thing, Moses, this is a shift. Well, here questioning seems to be uh, a, a good thing. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's so it's, it's so popular. It's like the the other side of it is that why it's this is in juxtaposition. Why it is in juxtaposition with the previous midrash? I did not put it there for exactly that reason. Okay. But um, it, this midrash picks up on the same, you know, th- th- raises the yeah, same issues. Was is it because uh, Abraham asked questions? Is that what this is about? That's that's the okay. So let's look at um, text number eight. Go ahead. Punishment for trying to assimilate. The rabbis commenced this discourse with this verse. They have dealt treacherously against the Lord, for they have begotten strange children. Now shall the new moon devour them with their portions. Hosea five seven. This teaches that when Joseph died, they abolished the covenant of circumcision, saying, "Let us become like the Egyptians." We can infer this from the fact that Moses had to circumcise them on their departure from Egypt. As soon as they had done so, God converted the love with which the Egyptians loved them into hatred. As it is written, he turned their heart to hate his people to deal craftily with his servants. Psalms 105.25. So what do people think about this one? Question: Did they circumcise them at huh. the Exodus, or when they went into the land forty years later? Both. 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 And it lasts. It lasts in. It lasts in the desert. Exactly. I, yeah. Okay. But um, what's this about? Seems like the chronology is out of order, because if they're circumcising in their departure from Egypt. And then as soon as they do that, so on leaving Egypt, that's when the Egyptians begin to hate them and deal craftily with them. That seems out of order. Well, I think that um, the idea is that they've stopped their, their... You learn from the fact that Moses had to circumcise them when they were leaving Egypt, that they had stopped. Yeah. And what's that stopping about? That stopping is about maybe trying to be like the Egyptians, trying to assimilate in some kind of way. And th- when you start doing that, that's the Egyptians seem to t- take a very negative view on that. But it seems like they were dealing craftily with us long before when they talked us into becoming slaves. The teaching that we were cut of course into slavery over time rather than made immediately as slaves. So that's kind of what I think of with dealing craftily. And if they've already left, how could no. the Egyptians deal craftily with no, them? No, they haven't. I, I don't see where you're getting that they've left. Moses has to circumcise the people before they leave. Yes. Okay, that means that they've abandoned circumcision mm-hmm. as a people living in Egypt for a long time. That's what the Midrash is about. Yes, but it's saying that as soon as they had done so, circumcising themselves. No, no, no. As soon as they stop, as soon as they stop, they yeah. It's the assimilation that, in trying to be like us, that gets them in trouble when it turns to the God intended. Yeah. Yeah. As soon as they stopped. Yes, yes, yes. So here, the whole idea, I mean, I, I use the word assimilation. Of course, the text doesn't use that, but it's pretty close. Let's be like them. And so, uh, the consequences. 
big consequences. You want to? I just kind of answer the questions of perhaps they deserve. I'm <laughs> uh, just saying it's.
many of those guys to say that the Egyptian thing of, of slavery and redemption, suffering and redemption, is a constant theme. That's an important theme, I think, in our brother. Sure. That's what this is doing. Yeah. Sure. That's why you can now say the there's a commandment for everyone every year to believe that they're in Egypt. Yeah. No, this is certainly the um, sort of the model, it's the exile and redemption model of history. That wherever, wherever we are, we're going to be in, in fall into some kind of exile. But it'll have an ending like the Exodus did. And um, you know, the fact is that 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 has not exactly been true to our experience either. So the, the Haggadah is a big reinforcement for um, the fact that experience has been um, a little bit different than what we read in the story of the Exodus. But all Jewish holidays are that. Yeah, many, many of them. Yeah. Well, yeah. You didn't have to get, but that's but, what but going to. And hold on. Hold on. Okay. Yeah. But you know, it, against that background, you see um, the Haggadah, it's, it's really a, um, it's a liturgy of hope in a certain way. It's saying, don't give up. It worked out that time. It was very dark then. It was hundreds of years. Be patient. It'll work out again. I mean, it's we needed that. We needed that based on the experience that we were having. We needed that. So um, let's um, we'll look at a couple of different midrashim uh, that deal with this questions related to this. Um, somebody want to just um, read the last one, the last read the last paragraph, or the last start at number ten. And then go on to the top of the next page. Somebody. Somebody? Okay. One midrash imagines the ministering angels warning God that the people of Israel will surely prove it. They was in exile because periodically they had fallen into idol worship when they lived in their own land. God argues that Israel will surely remain faithful and declares that the Egyptians could not withstand ten plagues and so they are extinct and gone and as for Israel, even though I bring troubles and chastisements upon them in this world, they do not recoil from me, but remain steadfast and never endure in their regeneration. God continues to argue Israel's case before the angels, though I burdened them with every with ever so many troubles in this world, and I brought chastisements against them in every generation, being in every hour, they do not recoil rebelliously. And even in the moment of their anguish, as the hands of the utterly wicked, they speak of me as he who is righteous. Even in such a moment, they say, we have sinned, we have committed crime. The Midrash continues with confession, we do decided on in So, one of the reasons that we're able to continue is that we, it seems from this Midrash that we are not, we're not willing to come down and blame God too much. A little bit. But we will say that we have sinned. We'll take the responsibility on us. And so there's a, there's a saving capacity in that. And the relationship between us and God uh, remains intact because we're not getting completely into the mode of how can this be? And we're not rejecting God completely. We, some of this other Midrashic stuff that we've looked at before certainly um, is sounding a little bit angry. But, you know, liturgically, Look at the prayers that we recite every day. And it's not just in the Hagyam paper, not just in the Haggadah, but the prayers every day. There's a tremendous, tremendous amount of uh, faith 
that's required to say that there's a lineage. Tremendous. And it's like God is taking note of that. Yeah, that's why I think he, in a way this turns it around. We we would read it wrong just because both of us and the other God delivers them, but here it seems God delivers because of what we have done, which is quite a twist. God's delivering because you've remained faithful. Yeah. Which is a remarkable rereading of the literal text. Mm-hmm. So that it both praises the people but also it's just very different from yeah. what you would have read, but I would have read immediately. Yeah. Yeah. But there's a there's a reason that what, what this midrash gives you is a reason reason for right. doing that. It isn't like it's just that big. Okay. Okay. Now to another. This is the next one is um, very um, short. of this one and very old, second or third century. Um, and. Uh, this is um, a midrash that is um, picking up on um, a verse in Shirat Hayam when the uh, Israelites have crossed the Red Sea. Moses and the Israelites sing, and one of the verses that they sing is Mircha Mocha Be'elam Adonai. So, th- and this is in liturgy, very big. We're saying this, uh, you know, a lot. Um, so, who among you? Who among the um, the Celestial ones, is they're like you know, like you. And what this midrash says is, it, it, I mentioned earlier that midrash often you know, does like little word plays and things like that. And here, there's a little typo, but um, I'll show you what is in there. What this midrash is doing is it's taking the word alim and adding something else to say um, It should say ilaymim, the deaf ones, the dumb ones, the ones who not. Ones, the ones who cannot speak, the dumb ones. So, who is like you in, uh, among the, the ones who can't speak, the dumb ones in the world? Who is like you, though seeing the insult heaped upon your children, keeps silence? Very, very powerful. I mean, that, and that's you know, taking a verse that is so central to our liturgy and turning it completely, completely upside down. And uh, very interesting, there was a, uh, in the Middle Ages, there was a, uh, a piyut around the time of the Crusades, a liturgical poem that used a lot of the language here in this little midrash, uh, accusing God of keeping silence. And then the, the refrain was from a verse of oh God, you know, don't keep silent. So we have, you know, going way back through um, the Middle Ages, this uh, uh, a sense that um, we're not getting the answers and we're not getting the salvation always um, that we're expecting and that we're hoping. And Midrash, again, is a place where, um, you know, it's, it, you can think about it as a, like a release valve almost. It's a, it's a place where uh, the people who are, and it's not everybody who's writing Midrash, but scholars and people who are deeply into the tradition are, have a place where they can invent some of this. Because if it's kind of just the liturgy, you know, it, what do you do with these feelings? Where do you take them? And, uh, how do you deal with the, with the contrast between, uh, you know, the ideal, let's say if we're talking about the ideal of redemption from the Exodus, and, and experience. So Midrash is a powerful place to allow this venting to occur. And the fact that it can actually even work its way into liturgy is 
uh, PU team is uh, actually quite amazing, quite remarkable. The PU that I mentioned was, at, was um, up until about 100 years ago, was part of the, uh, the Pesach Mach, Machzor. And it would, there, that PU would be read, I think, the Shabbat before Passover. Very, you know, the tradition is very, um, quite amazing in that regard. Really willing to tolerate some uh, discordant um, notes. Which I, it's very admirable to me. Okay. Uh, so, again, this question of what do we do when uh, God is not um, rescuing us from uh, their hands. Here's the Midrash, uh, the Midrash on Psalms, a very large collection of Midrashim collected over like maybe a thousand year period. Very hard to say, you know, what piece of, what, uh, of this comes from what particular time or place, but um, collected over a long period of time. And uh, this will continue the theme that, that we were talking about a little bit earlier uh, in terms of a uh, particular, oh, well, a general historical circumstance. And, and looking for uh, some kind of um, salvation right now. Who would like to uh, read this one, number 12? Sure. You do not work miracles for us to give for our ancestors. They who were in Egypt obeyed but a single commandment, slaying the Paschal offering, and went forth that very night. But what of me? I have obeyed all of this, all of the commandments. From what did you redeem our ancestors in Egypt? Was it not from the oppression of the Egyptians, of which God said, And I have also seen the oppression. For me too, life is nothing but oppression by an enemy. Did you not send redemption from the hand of two redeemers, Moses and Aaron, to that generation? Send two redeemers like them to this generation. <laughs> it really is quite a challenge. Huh? It's quite a challenge. Yeah. What's also interesting about this is that, I mean, if you think about the, um, the Haggadah, the Haggadah is really, you know, it's downplaying Moses very strongly. You're not finding much about him. That's, I actually do a, a lecture on Moses in the Haggadah, which I'm not going to get into too much now. But here, this is very much like, send us these redeemers. So we want Moses and Aaron of, you know, from, uh, you know, for our generation too. So this is really giving the human um, kind of role a whole different um, spotlight, among other things. Did you mind? Well, only that it's a very dangerous Jewish position. That's, that's why it seems to me why it doesn't make the Haggadah, because we'd always be waiting for the Moses and Aaron to come. Wouldn't see it in our own hands or in our relationship to God. And they told you that there's only going to be one Moses. Well, this is two redeemers like them. Like them. Right. It's not, don't, it's not saying send us Moses and Aaron again. It's saying we need leaders. We need right. people who have capacity to uh, influence our circumstances. All right. How many in Well, you have a choice of what you can wait for. <laughs> This is before Egypt is a paradigm of redemption. Now Egypt is challenged to God because if that was the where what now? Um, you set up Egypt, but where are we now? So exactly. Egypt becomes like a challenge to God. And and again, the comparison is again the evil is the Egyptian period. There, there was so little that was done. Uh, there was just one. There was no punishment. There was no punishment 
here? Why are we being punished here? They, they just did one commandment. We, we are so pious. We do right. all these commandments. And there's no redeemer. Cloud means so much the number of redeemers. I the think that there's no redeemers. And we've done so much. They did so little. Right. So why aren't we being redeemed? Right. All that hiding. Yeah. It's very, it's touching. It moves It's a cry. There's a cry in there. Yes. Did somebody over here? Somebody? Okay. So, um, from what we've looked at so far, you can see that the, uh, the world of Midrash has um, some very different things to say about some of the themes that are raised in the Passover Haggadah. And it doesn't give you um, such pat answers, comparatively pat answers, as you will get in, in Haggadah or in, um, in most of Jewish literature. So it's, um, you know, it's uh, for people who are um, having questions and people who are struggling and people who are, um, yeah, questioning what? Same old, same age yes. old. Yes. But, but there's, the existence of this liturgy, you know, text like this in it, says that those questions are legitimate. And you ask them now, you're not going to be the first one. You're going to be in a long, <laughs> sort of illustrious line of um, people who are willing to put those questions on the table. Where is this liturgy? I mean, I've never seen it in any other. Where is this liturgy? Physical, I mean, where? What? Yeah, I mean, there isn't any other. No, 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 no. But but what we're having to look for. What right? we're looking yeah. at now. Is that you're going to take something. You'd have to know where to find it. Right? Yes, it's right. It's just really not common. It's not accessible. Well, but, okay, so the question is, where do these things come from? Or, and, or, or if somebody wants to draw on it, yeah, it's okay. not in that goddess. No, you're not going to find this in the Passover Haggadah. Not in any. No, because the purpose of the Passover Haggadah is to answer the questions in a very different way. Right. In a very, very different way. I can tell you where you can actually find in a Haggadah a lot of these midrashim. And that is in, in this My People's Passover Haggadah. There's a, there, well, there are maybe 10 different uh, commentaries. There's one on uh, a biblical commentary. There's a commentary on the translation. There's a feminist commentary. And there's a commentary on uh, Midrash. Midrash, you can kind of uh, look at the, at the Passover Haggadah. And I wrote that. And this, all of these texts that we're looking at, are things that I came across in the, the work that I did for that. So there is actually one Haggadah that you can find in the commentary. You can use all of these. Um, but the purpose of the Haggadah is to answer the questions in a, I would say, in a more, uh, uh, let's say, packed kind of way. And I, and I frankly think that um, that works for some people, and for some other people it doesn't work. And so. Um, you know, there's value in knowing that these kinds of things exist. Now, I want you, you said, well, where else do you find these things? Yes. Okay. So, I mentioned that the Midrashic literature is vast. Uh, a lot of it is um, translated into English, and you can you can buy Exodus Rabbah is published by Sonsino. Um The Nechilta of Rabbi Ishmael, which is a commentary on um, the Professes, is published by the Jewish Publication Society. Um, you, so you can get all of this stuff in English. You can get it in Hebrew, uh, all over the place on CD-ROMs and on the internet. But it, a huge amount of it is available in English. And um, 
I would say, uh, if you, I would really encourage you, if you're interested, to just spend a little time looking. Um, you're not, not all of the Midrash is going to be like this. Don't think that it's going to uh, all be so challenging of, of, of God and all kinds of other things. Some of it is very much um, you know, dealing with, with sometimes matters of piety and sometimes matters of language, and sometimes it wouldn't interest you as much as these things might. But it's within your, your uh, if you have an interest, you can find this stuff and do some reading. Yeah, this is a footnote. If you look at that, I just pray what we say. Lots of rabbis get tortured, you know, Right. You know, Kipper, I think you find, if you look at it, you find a very similar challenge. Yes. yes. Yeah. Um, put it in the guise of somebody who talks about a king who punishes them for mm -hmm. Joseph's sin. Mm -hmm. It's really disguised again as an evil complaint to God about what's going on and where it's rest. So I think that's one of those perhaps the Joshua which got into the liturgy right. at a very important moment in the liturgy. Right. Right. And look, if you also want to just look in the uh, the Book of Job sometime, you'll find that the Book of Job is full of complaints and full of some of the same kinds of theological questions. Why is this happening? What did I do? Yeah. Well, I was going to say that I I'm, I don't know if I'm good at having the answers. Straightforward, but actually, I think that that doesn't get straightforward answers at all. I think the whole idea is to raise questions and to invite discussion. There are no answers, I don't think. Um, I think most, you know, many of the contemporary contemporaries have panels on the side. Right. And there's so much midrash that's available right. that are, you know, really put into the contemporary contemporaries. Yes. But I think if you look at the text of a, uh, of a traditional Haggadah, um, You'll find that yes, it, it, there are questions that are um, raised, but they're also answered in a way, in a fairly, um, you know, I mean, God, God, that, the God is not raising questions about why now is our experience with God so discordant from what we read in the Book of Exodus. God is not asking that question, right? Yeah. No. And it's trying to make it seem like everything is the same. <laughs> um, but, but it's dealing with a more fundamental question in the sense of what happens to our past if there's no temple? What 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 is it that we can preserve when we can't do sacrifice? So you know, the medrash, an individual medrash, can have whatever objective it wants to do at what time. But the Haggadah has a very specific purpose. From from the Mishnah, because everyone knows there's not going to the temple, you're not going to do the sacrifices. Right. So does that mean Pesach dissolves? Right. Right. Uh, the Haggadah developed um, sure as a uh, reaction to the destruction of the temple. The whole idea of telling the story is an innovation. The telling of the story is not part of what happened in temple times at all. Right. And uh, it, it is it took the place of the Paschal sacrifice. Sure. So yeah, it wasn't. It, it had in, in its evolution, especially in the early days, it had a different purpose. But as it continued to evolve, you know, it, it, it the color of the times that pieces came into the Haggadah, you know, pour out your wrath, pour out your wrath, and um, Elijah coming. To, you know, there's very strong. 
yearning for for redemption in, in our time now, and a sense that um, we need that. Okay, so um, we're going to shift gears now. We're going to look at um, a very strange little piece of midrash that actually exists in the Passover Haggadah, and um, I'm going to uh, suggest to you an interpretation, uh, a way of understanding it from uh, the context of the um, this little midrash that will maybe make something that looked completely opaque uh, a little bit more um, meaningful, perhaps. And then we're going to conclude. Um, well, we will, our penultimate text is going to be something to do with Mahadev um, Dev. So. Um, we're on page four. How does the Haggadah use Midrash? The sword over Jerusalem. So, uh, if you have your um, Haggadot, let's see. Um, if you, I have a little map on here. If you go to the top of page 18, different translations and all, but um, the top of, eight, of page 18 is uh, where we're going to be focusing. And I just want to get a little idea of what's com- what comes before that. So we're going to look at the bottom of page 17. where all of a sudden the, the Haggadah's Midrash is going to begin to change tone. Before we get to uh, the bottom of 17, we're basically, the, the Midrash on My Father Was a Wandering Aramean is mostly taking little phrases from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 26 of the book of Deuteronomy, and expounding on them with mostly verses from Exodus, and a few other places, but mostly Exodus. So there'll be a little something from Deuteronomy, as it says, and there'll be something that relates to that from Exodus. Okay? At the bottom of page, um, in the middle and bottom of page 17, this Midrash begins to change tone. And I'm telling you this because uh, it's helpful to understand it in terms of what we're going to be getting to on the next page in a minute. So I'll, I'll, maybe I'll just read from the middle of 17. And the Eternal brought us forth from Egypt, not by means of an angel, nor by means of a seraph, nor by means of a messenger, but the most holy blessed be he in his own glory, as it is said. I will cast through the land of Egypt in this night, and I will smite every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute the judgment. I, the Eternal. I will cast through the land of Egypt. I myself am not an angel. And I will smite every firstborn. I myself am not a seraph. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I myself am not a messenger. I, the eternal, I am he, and none other. You get to have the tone of this midrash is a little bit different. This is really trying to make a point that that God was the one who did the last place. Okay? That it was God and not a messenger, God and not a a seraph, etc. And, um, there are, uh, I've written a lot of extensively about this, um, and basically it's my view that what this is um, a reaction to were ideas that were floating around in Judaism 
and um, certainly outside of Judaism, that there were multiple powers up there. There was a um, particular heresy called Shtei Reshviyot uh two powers in, he- in heaven. And there were there are Jewish uh, texts that deal with this question and try to argue against the fact that there were, unless you think that there are two powers in heaven, etc. Don't think that. Which is telling you that there were very, there certainly were people who were thinking that. And this this uh, passage of the Haggadah that I just read is very much along the lines of that kind of polemic. And it could very well be that um, in the minds of uh, the, comp- the composers of this, that Moses would have been one of those other maybe powers in heaven. And there are lots of Midrashim that talk about Moses as being uh, semi-human and semi-divine. And so the whole, uh, the whole minimization of Moses could well be a response to this kind of two powers thing. That you know, would be very simple, very short step to get close to deifying Moses like there was deification of other human beings and other religions. So um, you have a polemical tone going on here, and you have a sense that if you believe, you know, there's certain ideas, don't get close to those ideas. Okay, so that's that's what's happening here, I think. And now the question is what I'm just so yes, confused. Yes. But we, we know that it was God who did all the other plagues, not not Moses. Well, if you look and see who's actually carrying out the plagues, you see that it's very often Aaron and it's you know, sometimes Moses, and sometimes the two of them, and sometimes it's this. That they so, are actually yes, inactive. yes. And it's, in terms of the um, the slaying of the uh, the Egyptian firstborn, in the I don't want to spend too much time on this, but in the Bible it says uh, that God is going to there's the Mashpit, the slaughterer, who is actually going to come and um, kill the Egyptian firstborn. And God, what God is going to do is prevent this, the Mashpit from coming into the Israelite home. So there, in the book of Exodus, there is definitely this other actor, which is part of where all of these two powers ideas begin coming from. There's a biblical substrate for all of that kind of stuff, which in later literature gets elaborated, and you have multiple figures floating around up there. Yeah. I know that in the Rambam's Haggadah, the Rambam is definitely bothered that Moshe is left there, because when we read all this, we always... Everyone is saying, where's Moses? He's all over the book of Exodus. Right. So the Rambam says, in the, if you teach the Chacham, right. after you teach him the laws of Pesach, tell him all of the things that Moshe Rabbeinu did in Egypt. Because the Chacham will understand contextually Moshe was an Eved Hashem. But the other children, you don't teach them. You go the, what we'll call the party line, that it's all God. Right. Yes, Maimani says exactly. For your simple children, tell them about all the miracles that God did. For your more intelligent ones, uh, tell them all the miracles that Moses wrought for us in Egypt. It's very, very special. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So now we're going to um, we're going to actually look at this um, midrash that deals with this strange um, expression of a sword outstretched over Jerusalem. Let me just read a little bit from this I've got here. With a, with a strong hand. We're at the top of page 18. With a strong hand. This refers to the pestilence, as it is said. Behold, the hand of the Eternal is upon thy cattle, which is in the field, upon the horses, upon the asses, and upon the camels, upon the oxen, etc., etc. And with an outstretched arm. This is the part we're really interested in. And with an outstretched arm. This refers to the sword, as it is said. 
and a, a drawn sword in his hand outstretched over Jerusalem. So, what is a sword being outstretched over Jerusalem doing in the Sadat? Huh? Zdrowa Nitiyah, it means a sword? No, Zdrowa is outstretched right. arm. So where is it saying that David Hamed has a sword? Sort of um, um, yeah, the Harbosh Lufa Biyado, Nitiyah. Is it David Hamed when there is a Deva? Yes, yeah, we'll get to this in a minute. There's a, it, sometimes what happens in Midrash is there's, uh, and also in um, Jewish law, there's a, something called the Gzei when the same word appears in more than one place, you say, oh, this means this because of the same word. So here you have this, this word, nituyah, and nituyah is in both places. But I think that there's, that's, you could explain it on that level, but I think, as you'll see, that there's more going, there's definitely more going on here. But did, did you ever uh, stop and think about what, in the middle of this Sagar, why is there something about a sword outstretched over Jerusalem? Never thought of it. It's very, it's, it, it's there um, in all traditional other dough. And uh, yeah, you just, you'll notice it now. <laughs> okay. So, yeah. Well, doesn't it say later in the story, or earlier in the story, that Moshe names one of his children that, uh, because God saved me from the sword of Pharaoh? Mm-hmm. No. I don't know about the sword of Pharaoh. We learned it here at Grisha this semester. I just don't remember exactly the word. I'm not thinking about a, a sword of Pharaoh. I'm, I'm not aware of that. Yeah. Yeah. From the sword. Well, there have been a lot of a lot of efforts to explain in Midrash what this sword is about. And one of them, is, there's, a, there's a very well-known um, Midrash that says, well, um, the Egyptian firstborn were actually slain by uh, their children who took a sword and they killed the, their, the firstborn fathers and all kinds of Midrashim trying to explain this and trying to find swords in the story of the Exodus, which there really are not many of. Um, there is a place where Moses says to Pharaoh, if you don't uh, let us go and sacrifice, then God will maybe put us to the sword. But you practically always in the Bible, when there's a reference to a sword and pestilence, the, the objects of the sword and pestilence for the people of Israel. They're not, they're not uh, some other enemies. That, I, I will bring upon you sword and pestilence. This is one of God's special like recipes for us when we spread. Um, okay, so what we find is, um, and I want to kind of move this a little more quickly. There's a there's a um, there's a midrash from uh, about the fourth century. I'm on page five now. That um, it's a, a a very early midrash on the book of Numbers, and uh, there's a, uh, a a midrash here that deals with Ezekiel. <coughs> And Ezekiel, um, Ezekiel is going to find himself interrogated by some local townspeople. And he's going to wind, in this midrash, he's going to wind up uh, using some of these, actually in the book of Ezekiel, he's going to use some of this 
idea of Yadhasaka is growing into Yah. He's going to use this outstretched arm, uh, outstretched hand, outstretched arm, strong hand, outstretched arm. And Midrash is going to bring these phrases that we find in the Haggadah to elaborate on them. And so the source of the Haggadah's Midrash is actually this Midrash on the Book of Numbers. If this from about the year 400. Okay, and, and we'll, I'm, we'll read that. The Haggadah is quoting, in other words, a midrash from the fourth century here. And the question is, what does it mean? Why is it doing that? What does it mean when it's doing that? Okay, so if you go to uh, page five, there's a paragraph that says, They said to Ezekiel. And there's a little typo in the first line where it says, Loose, it should be loose. But if somebody would like to read that, somebody want to read? Go ahead. They said to Ezekiel, if a master sells his slave, doesn't the master lose his authority over his slave? Yes, he answered. They said to him, since God has sold us to the nations of the world, are we not exempt from God's authority? Ezekiel said to them, but if a master rents out his slave on the condition that the slave returns, is the slave no longer subject to his master? And we dress not with the And, a little louder. Sorry. And what you have in mind shall never come to pass. When you say we will be like the nations, like the families of the land, worshiping wood and stone. As I live, declares the Lord, the Lord God, I will make over you with a strong hand and with an outstretched arm. Um, mighty hand refers to the disease, um, the disease among the cattle, as it is written. Behold, the land of the Lord strikes your cattle, which are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds and the flock, the very severe pestilence. Outstretched arm means the sword, as it is written, his drawn sword in his hand, outstretched over Jerusalem. So this is the actual source of this, the phrase that we'll see in the Haggadah. Okay? And if you, now what we're going to do is think about the context here. What is this Midrash about? The Midrash is about, it's raising actually a theme that we've encountered many times already. It seems to be um, if the master sells his slave, okay, God is the master, we are the slave, God, it's, it's like God has turned us over to another master. And so we're not in a great situation anymore. And we, what's our responsibility to God if God has sold us off to some other master? And so the Midrash would say, well, it's not, you haven't been sold, you just been rented out, which means it's temporary. Which, this is a theme that we've, we've seen in a lot of the things that we're talking about, that we've been talking about, you know. Things look really awful. What's the next step? Is this the end of the road? And what we've, we've seen in some of our machine that there's a hope that there will be, you know, we're, this is where we're stuck now, but it's not the end of the story. And so this Midrash is, is, is very much playing with this idea that we had. But what it's saying is, if you think that you know God has sold you so you can turn your back on God, God is going to double down here. And this, this sword and this outstretched arm are going to be um, directed against you in a very, very um, serious, dreadful kind of way. So don't think that just because times are bad and God seems to be a little bit uh, off the scene, that God is an absentee landlord, so to speak, and you can just go your merry way. You still owe to God, that's what this Midrash is saying, um, loyalty. It's a temporary situation. You may, you know, this is, 
you can rent it out, but it's not the end of the story. It's also warning against assimilation. Huh? Yes, it's it's warn- It's not just assimilation. It's like this. God is not being God to me now. I want to go join something else. I want to be like the other nations. I want to try their religion. And this is this is probably something. This this uh, midrash uh, was added to the Haggadah probably in Babylonia. You know, maybe 800, 900, something like that. There were a lot of other religious options for people in Babylonia at the time. Uh, sticking with our religion was certainly not the only choice. And this is a midrash that is, that is uh, found its way into the Haggadah. It, you know, the times that it was put into the Haggadah are, are resonating very much with the times of Ezekiel too. Ezekiel is living in exile. Ezekiel is living in Babylonia. The temple's been destroyed. What's the future? And so the, the time that this gets added to the Haggadah is in some ways like the time of Ezekiel too. A time of abandonment, a time of no temple. Yeah. So the Haggadah doesn't quote the verse from Exodus with an outstretched hands and with great signs. It adds a Yerushalayim as an implied threat to the Jewish people. If you go down that road and Giving up, giving. If you if you think that God has really um, sold you to another master, this is what's in store for you. It's the traditional recipe for Israel being wayward and errant in faith to God: the sword and pestilence. And you look in the Bible and see all the places where sword and pestilence come up. It's always against us for going against God. So I'm saying, think about what we what we what led to this a few minutes, and what preceded this was this whole polemic against the two powers in heaven. That saying, if you start believing like that, don't. And this, this is following up in a, in a slightly different direction. If you think that God has you know, uh, sold you, and therefore you're free to go your very way and give up his folk and Judaism and all that, don't. So I'm saying it's, a conti- it's in a subtle way, it's a continuation of the, this message, which is, you know, um, you have to dig it out. If you don't, if you don't dig it out, you're just kind of puzzled. What is this sword in the middle of? Why don't they put that in? You could very easily. This is this is really interesting. If you wanted to stick with the form of the midrash that um, is earlier in the uh, My Father Was a Wandering Aramaic midrash, you could do this for mighty hand, as it is written. Because a mighty, with a mighty hand, the Lord took you out of Egypt. Outstretched arm, as it, you don't have to get into swords. As it is written, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and through extraordinary chastisements. You could do that. Why get into this sword over Jerusalem? I'm saying somebody had something else in mind. Okay. So. So you said this was added with the Nine hundred, eight hundred, something like this. Nobody knows exactly, exactly when. It's been it's been part of the, the standard Haggadah for a, a, a very long time now. But when you see something um, kind of that's discordant like that, you have to ask yourself, what's it doing there? Now it's possible it's just this Zerushava, but I don't think so. I don't think that, that especially where it comes after this this big polemic about certain theological ideas. I don't think that this is just a matter of um, you know, looking for, oh, Nituya, Nituya. Okay. So, um, 
something about Nechavidotea. So, somebody mentioned that this sword outstretched over uh, Jerusalem comes about. Uh, it's an angel, actually, that's standing over Jerusalem uh, with a sword outstretched. And why is this happening? Because King David has been, in, in the book of Samuel, it's like God incites him to do a census. In Chronicles, it's Satan who incites David to do a, a census. I'm very unclear exactly what this is all about. But David, not exactly of his own initiative, decides is pushed into doing this census. And this, this makes God furious. Also, not very clear why, because it's not like it, rules of how to do a census are not so clear. There's different rules about it. Not clear what David did that was so wrong, even if he did the census. But at any rate, he doesn't get a choice. Huh? He doesn't get a choice of punishments. Yes, he gets a choice of punishments. Right. He could fall into the enemy's hands, or he, there's three different choices. He's gonna he's gonna do the one that involves the angel, the sword of the angel of, of the Lord, because at least that one is it's three days. It has a certain time limit on it, and it's coming from the angel of the Lord, so it's gotta be better than the other possibilities. So that's the background for this. That's so the, we we see that um, floating around in the in the Haggadah there is this this whole issue of of counting. And this 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 context of the angel and the sword and all of that, we just we just encountered the same sword of that angel. It doesn't tell you, by the way, notice, it doesn't say it's the sword of the angel, because we just heard from Haggadah that not by an angel, so they're not bringing angels. Um, but at any rate, there is floating around this story of David at the census and numbers and counting. Okay, so counting counting the population, counting the numbers of people. And this is something that actually is... Uh, the, the Haggadah does a lot. There's a lot of numbers in the Haggadah. There's four of this and four of that, you know. But there's also counting the population in a, in a number of different places. So in the wandering Aramaic Midrash, you'll see he went down to Egypt and sojourned there, few in numbers. There he became a great and very populous nation. Few in numbers. As it is written, with 70 souls, your ancestors went down. And very populous. I made you as populous as the plants of the field. And the Egyptians fell harshly with us. As it is written, let us deal with them wisely, lest they multiply. So this theme of the, the uh, population of the Israelite people in Egypt exploding, becoming great, is also in the Haggadah. And it, it's not a surprise really why, because God promised Abraham that his descendants would be as numerous as the, the stars and the sand and the sea, etc., etc., and that's what's happening in Egypt. It's actually happening. Big numbers. So this idea of the large numbers of the population and counting and the population is floating around in the background of somebody's mind. Okay? And then we come to a song, Echad Miyadeh, which is all about counting again. But what's the origin of Echad Miyadeh? It turns out, I mean, it has an interesting history, which I'm not going to go into now, but um, there's, a, there's a midrash that seems to be the, the source of Echad um, Yodea. And um, it does, it's not exactly, it doesn't have everything that's in Echad Yodea, but it has a lot. And you'll see this on, on page 5, number 16. Uh, sorry, number 17. 
16 is Echad Yodea, which we'll, we can look at on our own. But 17, um, this takes us back to the story of David. And David is really thinking in this midrash, how are we, we got to, this is going to be terrible. Three days of pestilence and the sword, this is going to be terrible. So David is praying. As a consequence of this prayer, the, penalty, the penalties to be imposed for David's numbering Israel were successively reduced. The three days of pestilence were reduced to 36 hours by counting the days and the nights. Uh, and not the nights. By good pleaders, besides, good pleaders appeared in behalf of uh, mercy for Israel. There came the seven days of the week, the eight days prior to circumcision, plus 15, the five books of the Pentateuch, and the three matriarchs, plus 23. And according to Rabbi Tankuma, the Ten Commandments, and the two t- uh, tables of the covenant, a total of 35. Others suggested that in lieu of the commandments and the tables, the heads of the 12 tribes appeared. In any event, there remained only one hour of pestilence, but behold how many hosts died in that brief time, about 70,000. So here you, you see, uh, it, this is not exactly the same as but you can see that whoever was composing Echadiyadea was certainly aware of this midrash, and they fill, they fill in. Um, some other numbers here, and they got from you know, from one to thirteen. So, what's the point here? The point is that um, we were promised that we were going to be a big people, and the Haggadah is alluding to the fact that we're going to be big, numerous people. But this is another one of those realities that is not exactly um, corresponding to um, our ex- our great expectations and the promises that were made long ago. We're kind of a small people. And I think that um, what this song is saying, in a certain sense, is, you know, we're not supposed to, ca- we're not supposed to count Israel. We're not, when you go to a minion, you're not supposed to, like, one, two, three, you're not supposed to do that. There are all kinds of ways of not doing that. Because the Talmud instructed us, do not number Israel even for the fulfillment of a mitzvah. So I think there, there's an awareness. It's not, it's not, maybe it's connected to David, and the, what the, the, down, the downsides of doing the census. But maybe there's also a sense that we don't want to start worshiping you know, our numbers. We're great. We're big. We have big armies. We're strong. We have you know, this many ships. We have this many. That's not, that's not ultimately where the strength of the people of Israel derived. And the, well, I think what this song is saying in a very interesting way is, look, there are things that, that matter. You can count those. You should count the uh, You should count uh, you, These are the things that you should count. These are the things, and, and I think the song is saying these are the things that you can really count on. So when you want to count, count the things that really matter. Don't be counting the things that maybe other nations will be counting, and and don't even don't get too caught up in the promise that we're supposed to be so big, but we're not so big. <laughs> So count the things that really matter. So these are the touchstones, the symbols of Jewish faith. So when you want to count, count those. And I think that's what Echadiyodeh is, is doing here for us. And it's, you know, there's this kind of weaving together of themes that have to do with numbers and counting. Um, so uh, take a good lesson from it. Don't, don't count the small numbers. Count the things that really matter for us.
Okay, I'm happy to take a few more questions.